0: Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo.
1: Hello, thanks for listening. Ira Feinstein is an American author currently living in Chicago. Cut Off will be his first book. Growing up in Georgia and Michigan, Ira lived as Carla before gender transitioning at age 38. Carla lost both of her parents by age 11. Her father died unexpectedly of a heart attack, and two years later, her mother died from breast cancer. Many years after her mother's death, Carla learned that she carried a BRCA1 mutation, which gave her a much higher than average risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Carla had a preventive double mastectomy and hysterectomy before gender transitioning. Today, we're going to talk about what it's like to live with a BRCA1 mutation, both as a woman and a trans man, the decision to have preventive surgery, and Cut Off, Ira's first book. Ira, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I uh, will kind of get right into the, the meat of it. Both your mother and your maternal grandmother died quite young from breast cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about that time, how old you were? And did your mother know that she had a BRCA1 mutation? Sure. So
2: my mother's mother, she actually had ovarian cancer, but I didn't find this out until years later. As a child, I thought they had the same cancer. I see. And she had died when my mom was in her 20s. Oh, wow. I never got to meet her. And my mother, she carried that grief with her the rest of her, her life. I've asked relatives if my mother had any sense that there might be a genetic component to her cancer because she got diagnosed in the early 80s. So at that time, people were talking about high risk for families, but it wasn't necessarily they weren't talking about genes. And from what I can tell, she didn't really have a sense. You know, it was her mother who died of cancer. Her her mother's mother, her grandmother, was still alive. So there wasn't, you know, a strong and your mother, did she have any sisters? He didn't have any sisters either. So there was just her to have it. So yeah, she didn't from what I could tell, she wasn't thinking about that.
1: Okay. Okay. Now your father died two years before your mother. And I'm assuming that your mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer at that point?
2: Yeah, two years before that,
1: yeah. Okay. So you now that must have been I can't even imagine. It must have been so hard for you. You were nine your father dies unexpectedly, your mother's really sick. And on top of all that, you're completely uncomfortable in your body and how people perceive you. So can you kind of tell us how you coped and what was going through your head at that time? Sure. I think at that time,
2: my awareness of my gender, it wasn't at the forefront of my thinking. It was a, it was a small, it was a seed, you know, that it would sprout over the years, but it wasn't At the front, I think death was at the front of my thinking, you know, that my father had just died and my mother was sick. And at that point, it was a lot of prayer and hope and just going to church with my mom and going to special ceremonies where the the pastors would bless her and just this unrelenting feeling that she's got to be okay. She's got to be okay she can't die too. And when I wasn't doing that, I was, you know, trying to be a normal kid and then eating a lot of sugar, honestly, a lot <laughs> of sugar during that, during my youth. Yeah. Okay. Very, it was very comforting in those days.
1: Okay. And you have a younger brother? Is that I
2: right? Have a younger brother. Yeah. He's okay. three years younger than me.
1: Okay. And did you two, I guess, kind of help each other out at all? I know like really big events like this, they can either like bring families a lot closer. They can kind of yeah. split them apart. How, did yeah. you guys work together? He was
2: too young to work together. I think in sense, instead I became his parent. Oh, I see. Okay. And I felt a great deal of responsibility for him. I remember one time we were at the park with um, some of my moms, you know, with other kids and I introduced him as my son, <laughs> you know, that it was really, there was something I was embarrassed when he would do something embarrassing i felt like it reflected on my parenting skills it was very it was very intense for, to watch him sort of try to navigate being a child and also deal with grief and and then my mother feeling overwhelmed and sometimes expressing that what do i do
1: oh uh, yeah well and you um, a child yourself i mean you were 9 and yet you're trying to be a parent too that's got to be hard
2: yeah well children fill up the space that a family needs them to fill. I find, you know, I've known lots of people who have had traumatic childhoods and, and lots of people who haven't, and just the way you grow up where your body and your mind can't quite wrap their head around what's happening. And yet you, you know, you start to make the dinner, you start to clean the house more, you, you start to do all these things that maybe if, if you're in a house with two adults who are running the household in a equitable way, you don't, you don't have to grow up in those situations in the same, in the same way.
1: Okay. Yeah. Now, when did you yourself decide to have genetic testing? And if you could tell us like where you were, when you got the results and what your first thoughts were. When my mom died when I was 11, genetic testing
2: wasn't available. It was 1989. The human genome was just being mapped and the breast cancer one mutation wasn't even named. It was something scientists and the whole scientists around the world were on the the look for. It was a big race to discover it. And so I knew then that I had the mutation. As soon as my mom died, the only rational thought that I could make was my mom died, her mom died, both they both had cancer, and they died younger. And my mom died younger than her mother, so I just assumed that I had this mutation. And I decided then to get my brush removed. It wasn't until the mid '90s that testing was available, so I got testing in 1998 when I was 20. At the time, I was a junior in college. I had, you know, a couple years left under my parents' health insurance, my adopted parents' health insurance. And I thought, well, now's the time to get this done because I don't know what my life will look like once I graduate from college. So I went to the University of Michigan's Cancer Comprehensive Center and I got genetic testing. It was, I had to bring my adopted mom there with me because they weren't, they didn't want to let me have the testing. They wanted me to wait a little while. And I think part of the reason they did give me the testing is because they didn't think I had the mutation. There wasn't quite enough data in my family lineage for them to be convinced that I had one. They said at the time, I only had an eight to 11% chance of having a mutation. And I just thought they were crazy. It's like, whoa, I know what I know. You can think whatever you want, as long as you give me the test. And so they did. And I do remember when I was sitting in the room, it was two or three days before I turned 21. And they said, we found a couple of things. And my first thought was, I knew it. Mm. And I knew it. I was right. I've been right. Out of all the, you know, what it is to grow up and be unsure of what major you're going to choose and if you want to date somebody or not. But I knew I had a mutation. And I felt really proud of myself in a
1: certain way. Vindicated Mm -hmm. for having known. I bet. And I guess I want to ask you, you say they didn't really want to give you the test. Was it because or they wanted you to wait? Was it because they thought that, oh, you know, young woman, she may want to have children. We don't want her to make any real aggressive decisions or.
2: I don't know if it was completely that. I think at 20, what was I going to do with that information? You know, was I going to get a mastectomy right when I was twenty? I don't. You don't really quote unquote need to get one that early, you know. You're you. The likelihood of you getting cancer at that age isn't as high as it is maybe in your early thirties or and and at the time they didn't have a lot of data. Mm. But they didn't. Even, there was not even research to correlate a prophylactic mastectomy with a reduced risk of breast cancer for mutation carriers. The only data they had was that. Prophylactic mastectomies had reduced your risk of breast cancer if you had a family, if you had high risk because of your family. So it was such an unknown time mm. that I don't think that there was that much to offer me. And in some ways, there's still the same things that they're offering people now 20 years later and, and the more aggressive actions people can take. So I think and I don't know if they trusted that a 20 year old was emotionally mature enough to handle that information. Mm. and. No, in a lot of ways, when are you maybe we're never really completely ready for that information. That's especially especially the trauma usually people have when they're in that room and they're asking that question. Am I next? Mm-hmm. A lot to work through.
1: Now it, you said you felt vindicated. I mean, were you upset at all, or was it really more? No, I was right. I have to do something about this.
2: I it, I wasn't upset. Because I knew it, I I remember thinking because when I got the blood work done, it was about six weeks before I got the results because I had to ship it up to Utah and all that stuff. And so I I sat with it during that time because it was over the Christmas break and I was in college. I didn't have a job, so I I had really nothing to do but think about this mutation, for better or for worse. And I I thought, well, what if they're right? What if I only have an eight to eleven percent chance of having this mutation, and they come back and they say that I don't have it. And I just thought, one, I won't believe them. And two, I will think that there's a different mutation that they haven't discovered yet. Hmm. That there wasn't going to be any, I couldn't relax until I had this confirmation. Okay, And and I wasn't, so in that way, I wasn't sad about it because I couldn't imagine my life without it. It was the only thing that made sense in the narrative.
1: Okay. Okay. And had you already started thinking about what your next steps might be at that point? I did. I thought for
2: sure that I would have my breasts removed. And I thought I would have reconstructive surgery like my mother did. And I researched it. And I went to the, you know, this was before the internet was the first place people went, or at least it wasn't the first place I went. So I went to the Barnes and Noble. And I went to the breast cancer, the cancer aisle, and I looked through all these books and there was this art book of pictures of women who had mastectomies and you see them at all different stages. And I remember sort of slowly sitting in one of those big comfy chairs and slowly going through the pages and just the shock because I hadn't really seen my mother's scars. I hadn't, she'd hidden that from me. So it was the first time I'd seen what does a body look like when it's had the, it. A breast removed, and then what does it look like when it's re? They've created a new one, and what are these scars? You know, when I was twenty-one years old at that time, and it just it felt so scary to give my body to a doctor, and I I wasn't sure what it would feel like to be cut cut out cut open, cut off.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you have several essays on your website. And in one of them, you talk about pondering what you call, quote unquote, this middle ground. So not feeling like a woman or a man after your hysterectomy, which you decided to have as well. And I think you were still living as Carla at this point. But did you make the decision to, and, but you did make the decision to live as Ira about 12 years later. So did your preventive surgeries at all figure into that into the gender transitioning at all I think that the
2: surgeries sort of cleared the road for me because I couldn't deal with being trans because of the mutation in my mind the 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 mutation I have to save my life from cancer that was so much in the forefront and my feelings about my body, my feelings about being trans, I, I did not trust them because my mom died of cancer. Her mom died of cancer. What is it to be a woman? It's to, for me, it was to be somebody who was about to die of cancer. And so I couldn't be sure that my feelings about my body weren't in some way wrapped up in that trauma and some twisted defensive response to what it is to be a woman. You know, there were too many... like. How did I know I was trained? There were too many variables that I had to test. So when I had my mastectomy and I looked down at my chest and I didn't miss my breasts and I just thought, oh yeah, this is what I always wanted and it feels right. That was really empowering. And then when I had my hysterectomy and it's harder with the hysterectomy because you don't see the changes. You feel the changes. You feel the hormonal you know, surge and the craziness. So it didn't have the same sort of, Moment of aha, I made the right choice. For me, the hysterectomy was I no longer have to have a vaginal ultrasound every six months. and no longer have to have a CA125 blood test every six months. And I no longer have to wonder if, in between those times, cancer is developing in my body and I'm going to get the test and find out that I already have stage three cancer, even though I've been testing regularly, because that happens. Mm -hmm. to people. Those tests are not, nothing's 100% sure. So I feel as if the, the surgery's cleared the way.
1: Okay. Now, so after you transitioned, did you look at the BRCA1 mutation any differently? I mean, I'm assuming it faded maybe to the back, but did you feel any differently about it?
2: It faded to the back, pretty much immediately after i had my hysterectomy okay because at that point i felt as if i had done everything i could do to prevent cancer and i would always think well because there's so many things we can do right we can get we can get the testing done regularly we can get the mammograms done regularly we can live an austere life where we never drink any alcohol and we have a body that's in a very alkaline state and you know, we don't maybe we take off our our bras with the underwires because we want to make sure the lymph is flowing in our breasts and we get traditional Chinese medicine so that we know that all of our ecosystems and our body are in balance. There's so many things to do, but for me, how did I feel at peace with having a mutation and knowing what i that I did everything I could that was having the surgeries. And at that point, I just thought, well, the cancer could end up in my epithelial tissue. It could end up somewhere, but I know that I did it, all. And so I don't think that much about it anymore. And that's been a blessing because I've been able to live my life. And I think up until 26 when I, I guess I had my hysterectomy at 29, up until that point, I, I couldn't think about anything else. I couldn't function in the world the way other people do because I was so scared. Every, every cramp that I felt was ovarian cancer. Mm. You know, it was -hmm. it was a very heightened sense of just always being in that fight or flight state of
1: take action, take action, take action. Yeah. And that's really no way to live. That's way too stressful. It's no way to live. No. So now. I think that a BRCA1 mutation also maybe increases the risk of pancreatic cancer. So you talked about, you know, you had done everything you felt that you could. Do you still have to have any special screening at all? If I do,
2: I'm not completely aware of it. You know, there's
1: some the doctors will say, well,
2: you had, you know, because my history I had hysterectomy, I had my cervix removed. They're like, well, we don't really need to do a pap smear or anything like that. So I don't, maybe I should. I don't, there's nothing to do in a mammogram. I mean, maybe they would do an MRI every once in a while, but I don't know that insurance would cover it and I'm not in the place to pay for it. I think maybe when I hit 50, I'll get an MRI. I'll, I'll pay for it out of pocket if I have to every couple of years just to make sure. My Actually, my adopted father, oddly enough, ended up having pancreatic cancer. He's one of the few people who've survived. He, he's 12 years cancer-free, knock on wood. So I'm very acutely aware of not only what it is to have pancreatic cancer, but what it is to survive it and all the complications that are left over in the wake of having those parts of your body removed. It is it is not an easy path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. okay. Now, I wanted to ask you, as a trans man, how has your experience been with the medical community through all of this?
2: At the time, I felt like I was pulling one over on the medical community, <laughs> obviously. Really, how so? Yeah, because I knew on some level that I didn't really wanna be a woman. And, but I didn't feel comfortable saying that in any direct way. And I was sort of exper- experimenting with that feeling as we talked about earlier, because I wasn't quite sure I could trust it. So when I went to the doctor and I, and I wanted the hysterectomy, you know, when I didn't want to have kids and all of these things, I was so prepared for them to say, oh, you're a woman and you don't want these. You you want to wait until you're 35, at least, and you've given yourself the chance to reproduce. But the doctor actually, he was very, oh, yes, we this is great. You know, we try to get women to have these surgeries all the time and and such and such and such. And I just thought, well, how lucky am I that? You are all gung ho for me to have the surgery. I don't have to tell you anything about my gender identity. I don't. It doesn't even need to come into play, which was very freeing because nowadays, you know, in the twenty twenties or in the twenty tens on's, it's easier to find a doctor. Maybe not everywhere in the country, but it's easier to find a doctor who is aware of gender issues. But I, but finding one who's aware of gender issues and who's aware of the breast cancer one mutation and you know, an a, a ovarian oncologist, like an oncologist for that part of your body. There's not that many in the state of Oregon. There were three doctors who could have performed the surgery that I needed. Mm. And, and to find one who was also sensitive to gender, I, that felt like too much to find, too, too much to hope for, unfortunately, but I, I was glad that I didn't have to talk about it.
1: Okay. Now, what, what about now? Because, you know, clearly you have some special issues having the mutation and and living as a man, you know. Do you have any issues talking to your doctors now, or did you have to go through a couple? I don't
2: because I go to doctors who work with people who transition. Okay, so they're very up on the lingo and the language. Probably at some point I should go find another genetic counselor because it's been a few years, and I think you're supposed to go to one every year because the. Information changes, you know. Mm-hmm. What your risk for changes, what they recommend changes, and really, at as a mutation carrier, you're on the forefront of technology, you know, and you're at the whims of these changes. So you get a genetic test and you think it means one thing, and then five years later, you find out it might mean something else, and the risk level changes.
1: Yeah, and I'm assuming too, since you were tested relatively, I guess, early in the grand scheme of testing, mm-hmm. you know, now they have these, I, I'm assuming your test was just for BRCA1 and BRCA2, because I believe that's all that was known at the time. And now there are panel tests where they're looking at, you know, suites of 30, 35 genes, and they have more information on the um, variants of unknown significance. So are they, Are uh, is your, what do I want to say, is your blood or results being kept and then updated along with as technology changes? Or is that why you feel like you need to see a counselor? No,
2: it have, they haven't updated or looked at the blood or it's never been tested again. No, the last time I went to a genetic counselor, she said, you should be coming every year oh, okay. to, get, to get new information, to get the latest updates so that it wasn't based on new blood work. It was just based on how much information could change from year to year, and what they recommend, how that changes slightly from year to year. Okay. Because in pa- pancreatic cancer wasn't something being talked about in, you know, the late 90s, or it was, a, it was a theory, it wasn't something that they were saying, okay, your risk goes from 1% to 5%. At the time, they were talking about colon cancer, now it doesn't seem like they're talking about colon cancer as much. So I feel like for me, one, if it's under 5%, I'm not as, I'm not as worried. You know, not that it's not real, but it's just, it's not, and I'm not going to get my pancreas prophylactically removed
1: to prevent cancer. You know, there's only so many body parts you can cut off. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I guess I have a couple of final questions for you. Do you have any advice for other trans people who are navigating similar medical issues? or medical issues that, say, are associated with one gender more than the other gender, another gender?
2: There are the base things, which would be find at least one doctor who understands you, who you feel comfortable communicating with, and who's in your corner. And if you need that doctor to communicate with maybe a genetic counselor or somebody else in the, in the BRC, in the mutation community, allow them to be the bridge. You don't always have to be the bridge if you trust the person, you know, because it is a lot to put our health care in somebody else's hands. And then the other thing isn't isn't about health care at all, but it would be to meditate, actually, because no matter what's going on with the mutation, what surgeries we are or are not getting, we have to be able to find a state of calm and peace and during that time and to be able to make a rational decision you need to be calm to be able to sense your intuition and know what's best for you. You need to be calm. And that's something I didn't have. And those when I was 20 years ago, you know, I went to therapy, but therapy only helped me on a cognitive level. Therapy's changed a lot. And so I think there are a lot of things they can do when people are in trauma to give you tools and and ways to reprogram and rewire your brain so you're not in that intense flight or fight state. But I didn't have those options at the time. I wish I would have because I think I might have been able to navigate that the 20s with a little more grace. Not that any choices would have been different, but just I might have found a little more ease moving through it.
1: Okay. And I'm assuming you yourself meditate now? I do. I do meditate every day now. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? Oh,
2: but I do show up.
1: Okay. <laughs> how long have you been doing that?
2: A couple years now. Okay. It took me a while to get a real practice going. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I know my uh husband meditates a lot and he says, even if you just go and sit at the wall and spend the whole fifteen minutes saying, brain, calm down, brain calm down, that's still doing something. Yeah, you're so, you're showing up for the practice. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So finally, can you tell us a little bit about your book? I'm assuming given the title it's about your life. And what, you know, when will it be out? What what can you give us a preview? Sure. It
2: cut off it is about it is about my life up until the time I have my prophylactic mastectomy. And not only is it about being cut off from one's body or getting one's breast cut off, but it's about how trauma cut me off from the whole world. You know, after my parents died and I was taken into a family who had two living, healthy parents and five other children, even though I was very young, I remember thinking, this isn't worth it to be a part of a new family. It isn't worth it to love people. It isn't worth it to connect to people because I don't want to deal with losing anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just sort of about what is it to, to grow up when you don't want to connect and you don't feel safe to connect to others? and then you don't feel safe to connect with your body because you're so convinced that you're going to die and then the gender issue certainly threw something else into the situation that you know made it a little more complicated so yeah it's it's the the arc of that that time period of growing up in the in the 80s and the 90s when things were a little less clear than they are today it doesn't it doesn't have a publisher yet i'm currently in the process of trying to find one okay it's full whole experience unto itself, but, but I'm, I am confident that I will eventually find somebody because it is a story that needs to be told. And there aren't as enough stories about people who have had this mutation and make these decisions and the emotional toll that it takes on us to be so unknown in our bodies and in what it is to prevent cancer, which is a very complicated thing for everybody, let alone for somebody who has a high risk.
1: I want to thank you for being so generous with sharing your story with us today, because as you said, it's not one that gets talked about a lot. And I, I think this will help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.